Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Dave Ansel. This week we're decoding new ways to get children involved in computing and finding out how the new breed of supercomputers are helping scientists to solve the big questions. Plus, in the news, humans can distinguish one trillion different smells. And we talk to one of the scientists who's discovered gravitational waves left over from the Big Bang. And before we start the news, here's this week's scientific teaser. Since we're discussing computing this week, can you tell us who wrote the first ever computer programme? We'll give you the answer at the end of the programme, but if you have any other questions or comments or feedback for The Naked Scientist, our email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thenakedscientist, or you can also tweet at Naked Scientists. On to the news now, and for decades, scientists have claimed that humans can discriminate only 10,000 different smells. Now, a new paper published this week in the journal Science suggests that this is a massive myth, and the number should not be 10,000, but at least a trillion. Leslie Vossel is from the Rockefeller University in New York. Hello, Leslie. Hi, how are you? Very well, thank you. So where did we get this number of 10,000 from in the first place? It came from an influential paper from 1927 where some psychologists were sort of mulling what the number should be, and they came up with a theoretical number of a little over 6,000. And subsequently, that was just rounded to 10,000. And it's had this pervasive pall over human confidence about how good our sense of smell is. So for almost 100 years, just felt that we're terrible smellers. But some people, as we know, smell great. No, yeah. So when we're actually talking about smelling, what's actually going on when we smell something? So it starts with inhaling. So you, you inhale a bit of air that has smells in it, good smells, bad smells, food smells, flower smells, excrement smells. And all of those smells are odor molecules, and they land on a little strip of tissue in the top of the nose, the roof of the nose. And there they interact with receptors. And humans have about 400 different receptors and so that's why the number 10,000 never made much sense, because we can see millions of colors with just three receptors in our eyes, in our retina. And so if we have 400 receptors, right, so 100 times more than the eye, we should be able to smell much more than 10,000 smells. So when you say receptors, these are chemical docking stations sitting there looking for the molecules that we're sniffing in and interpreting them and then sending those signals onto the brain. Correct. So how did you then say, this must be wrong, let's see how many smells a person really can discriminate? So the study was designed by a senior scientist in my lab, Andreas Keller, and so he was playing with this idea, well, we, we can't bring humans in and have them smell 100,000 or a million or a trillion odors, but we can sample a subset of all possible odors that exist. And so he started mixing 
odors together in mixes of 10, 20, or 30. And when you do that, you get strange esoteric smells that don't particularly smell like anything. But you can have people tell them apart. So does strange mix A smell different from strange mix B? And people were remarkably good at this. So a, a rather large proportion of people could tell many of the mixtures apart. And so we could then extrapolate to what is the theoretical minimum of smells that humans can discriminate. And we come up with a conservative estimate of one trillion. How did you account for some people having a slightly more sensitive or acute sense of smell compared with others? That's a great question. So we we only enrolled people in the study who had at least the basics of a sense of smell. We exclude people who are terrible or unable to smell. But then we enroll a good cross-section of metropolitan New York City. So we have smellers who are our least good subject could only discriminate, we think, 70 million smells. And then our best smeller was many orders of magnitude better at 10 to the 28th smells. And so the discrimination of our subjects is across a broad spectrum. But the average for this human population is where we come to the trillion. And did you have representation of different ethnic groups? Because is there evidence that in the same way that we all look different, that different ethnic groups may be tuned or or genetically programmed to be able to sense certain smells better than others? There is a lot of variability in humans, and that cuts across whether you smoke, what your gender is. There's a little influence of race or ethnicity. Because we're in New York City, which is a big multicultural place, we always strive to enroll the most diverse possible group. So that's what we've done here. Men, women, people of all ages and races. Any professional wine tasters on the panel? Uh, we hope not. Uh, these, are, these are untrained members of the public. Presumably the, the experts would do even better than the non-experts. So what are the implications of this then, apart from the fact that all of the textbooks are wrong, all of the scientific research that quotes this 10,000 number to date is wrong, and you've got to put that right. What is the implication? We're really excited, and I think everybody who read the story is excited that that we've corrected this longstanding fact that was a made-up number. Um, I think the implications are that it brings the sense of smell up to the level of the other senses. We don't need to be terribly insecure that we're terrible smellers relative to our house pets. I think it should make people more conscious that they can do much better than they think they could. I think expectations play a huge role in people's lives, and I hope that people will starting today or whenever they heard about the story, really engage more with the olfactory world. It's ironic, isn't it, that uh, if you ask most people, if you had to surrender a sense, which would it be? Most people say that they would give away their sense of smell, judging it to be far less important than it really is. They always do, but if they did that experiment, they would end up... It it has huge effects on mood and how you eat, and people get depressed if they can't smell. So I think it's it's the least loved and the least appreciated sense, but we think it's it's actually... Its importance is, is huge. Now, what about other animals, though? Because we're accustomed to the fact that dogs, we know, are very good at uh, finding things. If you if you throw a ball for a dog, it can find it even in long grass and even in the dark, despite the fact it clearly can't see it. Dogs must have much better noses than us. So what implication does this study have for them? Are we catching them up? I think we are catching them up. So we talked about the receptors in the nose. So, so dogs don't have a thousand times more receptors. They have probably at most four times as many receptors. I think the difference between dogs and us is that they really care about their sense of smell. They they use it. Noam Sobel did an experiment where he put undergraduates on the ground and had them search for chocolate, and they were very good at it. So I think it's mostly just we are not using our sense of smell to its fullest capacity. They've even got a dog in uh, Holland. They call it Cliff, and it can sniff out C. diff. (laughs) 
So there you go. Leslie Vossel from Rockefeller University in New York. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, with the Malaysian Airlines flight MH370 still missing after over two weeks, some people are asking, how can you lose a plane? With over 6,000 planes flying above us every day, it's essential that air traffic control keeps in contact with them all. Here's your quickfire science on how we know where these aeroplanes are with Kate Lamble and Harriet Johnson. In controlled airspace, pilots are guided by air traffic controllers and must provide a flight plan for each journey including details of their destination and route. Air traffic control uses two radar systems to track planes. Primary radar can detect and report the position of any object which reflects the radar signals transmitted. This can be anything from birds to planes to even changes in the landscape. Secondary radar allows for more specific information. It links to a transponder on board the plane, which then returns a radio signal to air traffic control. It identifies the plane and provides information on its location. Radar signals only travel in straight lines, like light. So if the plane travels too far from the radar source, it'll pass over the horizon and be invisible to air traffic control. This often occurs when travelling over large oceans. From then on, any location information must be sent by the plane using satellites or high-frequency radio. Both of these can be used for the Aircraft Communications Addressing and Reporting System, or ACARS, which is like a text message system between the plane and air traffic control. For electrical and fire safety reasons, these communication systems are able to be manually switched off. This also reduces unnecessary signals clogging up air traffic control when the plane is on the ground. The ACAR system and the transponder are believed to have been purposefully switched off on MH370, allowing the Malaysian Airlines plane to effectively disappear. But the satellites, which can exchange voice messages to and from air traffic control, can also send signals which the plane automatically responds to if it is still active. These pings revealed that it continued flying for hours after the loss of the other communication systems. The pilot receives additional GPS information with the plane's position, but this is not usually sent to the ground. A new system, Automatic Dependent Surveillance Broadcast, or ADSB, will incorporate this GPS information. It's set to replace radar as the main method for tracking flights in the next 10 years. As the missing plane is no longer transmitting any signals, the only way to find it now is to send out search parties and literally look for it. The families of the passengers can only wait and hope. Harriet Johnson and Kate Lamble. And you can get hold of all our Quickfire Science episodes as their own podcast from the website at thenakedscientist.com slash quickfirescience. Thank you, Dave. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Dave Ansell. This week, a team of astronomers announced that the BICEP-2 radio telescope in Antarctica had detected evidence of primordial gravitational waves. Now, these are residual ripples in the fabric of space that originate from the Big Bang. The findings are very exciting because they could reveal what happened during a period which is called inflation, shortly after the birth of the universe. To find out a bit more about this study, we're joined by one of the BICEP-2 team. Clem Pryke is from the University of Minnesota. Hello, Clem. Hi. So kick off first of all and tell us, what are gravitational waves? Well, gravitational waves are distortions in the fabric of space-time which propagate through space with the speed of light. And they can come in various different flavours. As you said, the kind that we are announcing the discovery of this week are primordial gravitational waves which come from the birth of the universe. There are also uh, gravitational waves potentially produced by compact objects in the nearby universe, but that's a different story. 
So why has it taken so long to spot these waves? What's special about them that makes them difficult to detect? Well, the gravitational waves that we're seeing, what we're doing is we're seeing the imprint of them on the pattern of the cosmic microwave background as it was kind of written at 400,000 years after the beginning. So for the first 400,000 years, the universe was a, a hot, dense plasma. As it expanded and cooled, eventually it decoupled, and we see the cosmic microwave background coming to us from that time. And what we're seeing is a subtle imprint, an additional imprint on that pattern caused by the gravitational waves from that super early time, kind of written in that pattern at 400,000 years. And the only plausible source of those gravitational waves that we're seeing, they, they fit exactly the predictions for gravitational waves coming from the very, very early universe, a trillion, trillion, trillionth of a second after the beginning. So to sort of put this into a nutshell, you have a point source which explodes in this catastrophically powerful explosion, the Big Bang. This is impenetrable to our current ways of looking with standard telescopes. And so at the moment, it's something of a black box. We don't know what's gone on in there. It does, however, produce energy and light, which the echoes of which are still knocking around in the universe today. And we call that the cosmic microwave background. And you're able to then read out of that signal that's still around today, these waves, which you can then use to infer what must have happened in that first 400,000 years or so. Right. So studying the pattern that comes from 400,000 years is a well-developed science at this point. So we've been studying that uh, for several years, the temperature anisotropy, the, the temperature ripples, as it were, just the differences in brightness from place to place on the sky, and then uh, measuring the polarization pattern. And to start with, we were measuring the kind of generic version of polarization, which occurs just because you have uh, small deviations in density. And that's called E-mode polarization. So the big deal this week is the first detection of B-mode polarization. The B-mode is the kind of swirliness of the polarization pattern. If you think of a bunch of uh, little vectors on the sky, and then if you decompose the pattern, if you can see a kind of swirl in it, that's the signature of the gravitational waves. And as I said, those gravitational waves come from the very, very beginning. It's a way of seeing back further, right? As you said, we can't see back using light any further than 400,000 years, but we can use the gravitational waves to get information about earlier times still. And what can they tell you and what are they telling you about what happened during that first 400,000 years or so? What this week's discovery is all about is the first trillion, trillion, trillionth of a second, right? And in that period of time, there's this theory, this hypothesis that the universe hyperinflated, expanded essentially superluminally for a tiny fraction of a second by an enormous factor. And that process of inflation sets up the initial conditions for the subsequent hot big bang. So this is essentially kind of a pre-phase before the hot big bang. And there's been strong suspicion that this inflation actually did occur based on various observations about those initial conditions. But there was an additional prediction from that theory that the inflation process should have injected gravitational waves into the fabric of space-time, but they'd never been seen. And so that's the big deal this week, that we actually see a new prediction from inflation. So this is kind of a smoking gun that inflation is actually the correct theory for the birth of the universe. I've been having a look online, and Peter Coles, who's Professor of Theoretical Astrophysics at Sussex University, he's got a blog, and he says that he's slightly sceptical of, of what you're finding because he's saying if you look at your results, you've only found this in one particular frequency regime of, of microwave, the, the polarisation, the twist. Why haven't you found this in others, or have you just not looked in other frequencies? So we're very convinced that the signal that we found is true and on the sky. But then the question is, what is it? Is it really the primordial signal that we think we're seeing? Or could it potentially be foreground emission from our own galaxy? So while our galaxy emits rather weakly at these wavelengths, it still does a little bit. And we're down at a fantastic level of sensitivity now. 
So the concern is that since we've only really achieved really high sensitivity at one frequency at 150 gigahertz, potentially, you know, we don't have a guard that this signal isn't galactic foreground because the foreground would have a different frequency spectrum than the thermal emission from the cosmic microwave background. If you have multiple frequencies, you can discriminate different kinds of signal. You can rule out foregrounds. Now, we we have ruled out foregrounds to reasonably good confidence, but uh, he's right that it's not as high as one would like. And the European Space Agency have spent an absolute arm and a leg sending the Planck mission into space to make these sorts of measurements. They haven't found this yet, or at least they haven't said so. So why did your telescope in Antarctica find it, apart from the fact you're obviously very clever, and they didn't? So we stuck our necks out further. So we're a small ground-based experiment and highly targeted. So we designed the experiment specifically to look for these primordial gravitational waves. And had we not found them, then we would have basically been empty-handed. Whereas the Planck mission, which is vastly more expensive, as you say, is much more general. So it can do all sorts of science with the the standard kind of uh, uh, CMB anisotropies and also with galactic uh, science and a lot of things. It's a very general experiment. And so basically the reason that uh, we're first is just because we decided to target this very specific niche science and go after it very aggressively. Well, we hope that you are able to confirm it. Clem, and thank you very much for joining us on the programme. You're very welcome. Clem Pryke from the University of Minnesota. Also with us this week is science journalist Mark Paplow, who's been looking at the issue of bioethanol production. Yeah, that's right. The next couple of months could be a real make-or-break time for a new form of biofuel that's been promised for years, but it's only now starting to reach the market in meaningful amounts. Biofuels are meant to cut climate-changing carbon dioxide emissions by replacing petrol in our cars. As the plants grow, they suck up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So if you turn the crop into a fuel, it shouldn't, in theory, emit any extra carbon dioxide. Now, the most used biofuel is ethanol. In the US, it's made by fermenting sugars in maize with yeast to make the ethanol. It's just like brewing beer. But this form of ethanol actually offers pretty modest savings in greenhouse gas emissions. And growing so much of it actually raises food prices. So people have been trying to brew ethanol from agricultural waste instead. There's a lot more leaves and stems. They don't use up any extra farmlands. And and these second-generation fuels potentially offer much better carbon dioxide savings. So if it's so much better, why aren't we using them already? Well, it's been very, very difficult to actually break down the agricultural waste. They contain tough molecules like cellulose. And it's taken more than a decade of intensive research to get this process working at a commercial scale. But within the next few months, three big cellulose ethanol plants are set to come online in the US. So you would think all is looking rosy. But, I'm sensing a but. There. Yeah, there is a but. Just as cellulosic ethanol is making its commercial debut, it turns out there's actually no market demand for it. The US government programs to boost biofuel consumption have been so successful that corn ethanol now fulfills the entire need for the US motor fleets, which mostly burns 10% ethanol, 90% petrol blend, which is called E10. And this fact has been called the blend wall. Even worse, the Environmental Protection Agency is about to pull the rug out from under the cellulosic ethanol producers. It's about to change the rules so that blenders aren't forced to use quite as much of this stuff in their petrol blend that they sell on the forecourts. And producers fear that this is going to leave them with an excess of unsold cellulosic ethanol that they say could cripple their business. So this is basically about politics and economics, and it just isn't going to work unless somehow that's sorted out. That's right. There's a couple of ways around this. Exporting the extra ethanol... 
that's expensive to ship it all the way over to Europe. You could persuade US drivers to use richer ethanol blends, maybe, in their cars. The cars will run on them, but some people are worried by oil industry-funded studies saying it will damage their engines. And to be fair, richer ethanol blends have less energy than straight petrol, so a tank full just won't take you as far. As a result, science, chemistry in particular, might actually come to the rescue in this problem because with chemical catalysts and high temperature and pressure, you can convert cheaper feedstocks like municipal solid waste, the stuff that we throw away in our bins, directly into petrol, which can be dropped straight into the fuel supplies. So you don't have this blend wall problem that ethanol faces. And a commercial plant doing the front end of this process is about to come online in Canada in the summer. Brilliant. So it's looking hopeful. And if you'd like to follow us up on these stories we've been discussing, there are references and transcript for these news items on our website at nakedscientist.com slash news. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Dave Ansell. On to our main topic now, and 2014 has been declared to be the year of code, with one campaign aiming to encourage children across the country to get coding for the first time. This September, computer programming will also be introduced to the UK school timetable for every child between 5 and 16, and that means that the UK will be the first major economy in the world to implement this on a national level. So why is computer programming and getting kids into computer science so important? We're joined by Eben Upton and Carrie-Anne Philbin, and they're from the Raspberry Pi Foundation. Hello to both of you. Hi there. Hello. Hello. So tell us, first of all, uh, Eben, what what is a Raspberry Pi? Better start off and explain. (laughs) A Raspberry Pi is a a credit card-sized 25 US dollar computer that a group of us here in Cambridge created to try and teach kids to code, to try and give kids that experience we used to have in the 1980s. I can fondly remember coming up to Cambridge, it would have been 1984, and going to the the Cambridge Computer Store to buy my BBC Model B microcomputer, which then taught me the rudiments of computer programming. And I was bereft when there was nothing really to replace it in the next decade because I just felt there was nothing there to engage kids the way that that did. And I suppose, was that sort of part of your motivation? Absolutely. So I, I'm a little younger than you. I, I got my BBC Micro when I was a kid in 1988, and it was a very second-hand, very battered piece of hardware then. But the day I got my BBC Micro, my Lego, my Lego went in a drawer and never came out again because it was just the most transformative experience for me. I had been a Lego kid, and then I was a BBC Micro kid from then on out. And Carrie-Anne, you're originally a school teacher. You're now obviously working with these guys, so they, they obviously regard uh, your school experience as fundamental to trying to get Raspberry Pi and the coding regime into the classroom. What's the current problem? Um, how do you mean a problem? Do you mean problem for young people? What, why, you haven't, why are we not teaching kids programming in school? Well, I think already? for a long time we weren't teaching programming in, in primary and secondary schools just simply because it wasn't on the curriculum. A lot of teachers would not have known how to teach it either. So it was missing for a long time with a, with a curriculum that wanted to teach young people skills that they thought were necessary for the workplace, digital literacy skills that would make a young person employable later on. And I think what actually happened was programming and the skills of programming, and not just programming, but understanding how computers work and how networks work and what the internet is made up of and how all that stuff happens, all just kind of got lost, sadly. <laughs> I mean, my feeling as an external to all this is that computer science largely became regarded as a sort of extended workshop in how to make Microsoft Word work or how to do a spreadsheet rather than actually fundamentally understanding how you make a computer work. I think um, a large aspect of the previous curriculum 
did involve that. I can say I taught the old curriculum and I did have to teach Word and PowerPoint and Excel. But, you know, a good teacher takes that curriculum and they see how they can actually introduce computing concepts to it. I taught sequencing and I taught control quite often in the previous curriculum. I think the movement towards a new curriculum, a computing curriculum, is actually being led by teachers, good teachers, who saw that we'd lost those wonderful skills. You know, I'm old enough also to remember BBC Micro. There was one in my primary school classroom. And, you know, I started Turtle Graphics on that because I was particularly good at maths in primary school. But as I went through secondary school, I wouldn't consider myself to be very academic. You know, I I didn't get A stars and A's at GCSEs. But computer programming, what I was doing at home, was empowering me as an individual. And that's what led me into my career and ultimately to bring it back into the classroom. And even why should someone go and buy a Raspberry Pi? Because, quite frankly, you, you could do with your laptop or your desktop whatever you could do on a Raspberry Pi, couldn't you? I mean, it's just Linux. I can install a copy of that. It's free. And Python is the programming language you're using. I can go and get that for free off the internet and install that on my desktop. Absolutely. And, buy a Pi. and I think we, I think we suggest people should do that. It simply isn't the case, though, that all children have a laptop or a desktop computer that they can install these tools onto. If they do, they absolutely should. I think the thing the Raspberry Pi that we found that children find very enjoyable about the Raspberry Pi is you can connect it to physical hardware. So unlike a PC, it has these interfacing capabilities. It turns out you know, moving a pixel around on the screen is nowhere near as cool as it was when I was a kid in the 1980s. Moving an object around in the real world is just as cool or possibly even more cool now you can connect that object to the internet. We'll come back to Eben and Carrie Ann in just a moment, but first let's hear from a bunch of fledgling coders. They all attend Park Street Primary School in Cambridge and go to an off-school coding club called the Park Street Hacker Elite, which sounds very exciting. They were thrilled to get five free Raspberry Pis from the Foundation in the year of code competition and have managed to get sponsorship from the local tech firm Bango for the cables and screens and all the stuff they need to hook them up. Before these trainee hackers are let loose on those, though, they have to get to the rudiments of code straight by learning some of the most basic languages. Catherine Carr went along on Tuesday to see them in action. Yeah. OK. Listening in, ladies and gents. My name's Mr C, and I started the coding club at Park Street. This week with the Fruit Machine Project. Theo, you need to be listening. They're starting to mandate for teachers to be teaching all of this sort of coding stuff now. Uh, it's getting to the point where lots of teachers are afraid of it because the jargon that they use is quite complex, but the subject itself and the concepts are very, very simple. I mean, if you know how to make a cup of tea, then you know what an algorithm is because you do the same thing every time, get the same result, and that's all coding really is. If your sprites are stopping at the same time, you need to check your variables because it means you set them for all of your sprites at once. So once you click on it, you get a universal result. I think that with the digital age coming around, it's about time that kids started to learn to tell a machine what to do rather than be told by the machine. And coding's the first way to get started in that. Go, go to variables, there's variables, and there's variables, there's variables, and then click make a variable. My name is Isabella, and I'm playing this um, game I made on Scratch called Wacker Witch. So basically what you're meant to do is, like, you make it into full screen, and then you click on the flag, and then the witches will start disappearing and moving around. So this is a game that you actually made yourself? Yeah, I made myself. The curriculum that we've got set up for Code Club has them pushing to be programming in a language called Python by the end of a, an academic year, which is quite a technical language to use uh, for children when you consider that 
they have trouble putting capitalism full stops in their own writing. Trying to get curly brackets and the right indents inside coding language could be quite a, ta- a challenging task. But that's what they're aiming for. I'm hoping just that we can get onto some hard scratch and have some sort of physical world uh, applications to our coding. So make a little machine that has a light that blinks or a burglar alarm that takes a photo of somebody that comes in, something real world and physical that we can see a result from. My name's Richard Leyland. I'm Bango's VP of Marketing Communications. So tell me about the involvement in this coding club and why you decided to do it. We're quite interested in the whole idea of coding being a new form of literacy that needs to be taught in schools and we see coding clubs like this as being you know, experimental ventures in that whole idea of teaching coding and, and it being a, a new competency that all kids need to have and so we're quite happy to support it and be part of it. My name's Tamara Sword and I'm a technology marketer. I run a company called TRMNC which helps early stage companies take new products to market. When I was eight years old, my dad bought a Commodore 64. Unlike today's gaming consoles, you could actually program it. It wasn't just about playing games. You could also actually code it yourself. And that's what I used to do. I used to write programs in a language called BASIC uh, for my Commodore 64, and I absolutely loved it. But then when I was 11 years old, I went to secondary school, and something kind of changed. I stopped coding, and... And looking back, I think there were a variety of issues, but one of them definitely was the fact that when I went to the computing club, it was exclusively boys, and all the teachers who could teach computer science were male too. So I suppose my takeaway, aged 11, was this wasn't the place that I actually belonged, and partly as a result, I stopped coding. I have seven girls and 13 boys. Everybody was keen, so um, the shout went out to everybody in Key Stage 2, and it had to be by ballot. Uh, we were supposed to take on 12, so they recommend 12, but we took 20 because I'm a big soft At home, I have a Raspberry Pi, and I found it quite fun to do it with my dad, so I thought this would be a nice chance to do some more and learn about it more. I came because I just like fiddling with things, and that's what you do in coding. Is there any um, sense that the kids are super motivated to do these sorts of things because it's a bit more exciting than full stops and capital letters in literacy? Definitely. Writing is something they've done forever and it's a bit mundane, but when they can do their writing and it produces a computer game at the end of it, then that reward is huge. Whatever you break on coding, you can fix, but if you mess up with your writing, you have to rub it all out and start again. You get to do loads of things and it's really free. You don't just look at it and then copy it off. You sort of make things whatever you want. At the moment, there's a big rallying cry around the year of code that everybody should learn how to code a website. And I think that's rather like saying that everybody should learn how to wire their own house. Not strictly true. I mean, certainly we need people who can do that. But actually, what's much more important, I think, is that the foundations of that application, the foundations of coding, which is actually computer science, is taught in schools really as a a foundational skill. Children in your class must talk about what they want to do when they leave school eventually. How many of them would you say have aspirations to work in this kind of field, tech field, coding field, programming? At this stage, the kids that I do with seven to nine, their ideas of career are quite pie in the sky to begin with. Um, You know, I'd like to be an astronaut or an actor or Superman. But we have one or two children here specifically who are very technology-oriented, and they have said to me previously, what sort of jobs are there available for me in technology? What can I do as a grown-up? And so we've had a chat about that, 
But it tends to be more boys, to be honest, who ask those sort of questions than girls. I think of all the children I've had ask me, of the half a dozen, it's like five of them are boys. Maybe girls come up to ask me. Hang on. What? I think it might be the other way round. That there, maybe? Hey, how come you got those two? Oh, they did that. That was Mark Kalija, ICT coordinator at Park Street Primary School in Cambridge, ending that report by Catherine Carr. This is The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Dave Ansell. We're talking computing this week and how to get more kids coding. With us are Eben Upton from the Raspberry Pi Foundation and Carrie-Anne Philbin, who also works at the Raspberry Pi Foundation. And uh, Rob Mullins is here from Cambridge University, where he's uh, in the computing sciences department and involved in recruiting people to come and study computing at higher level. Let's just return quickly to Eben and Carrie-Anne. So you must, having heard that, be delighted, because, I mean, that's at the end of the day what you set out to achieve, isn't it, Eben? Yeah, this is fantastic news and I think what's wonderful for us is when we first started doing this uh, five or six years ago we kind of felt a little bit like a, like a voice in the wilderness that we were you know the only people who were obsessing over this and what's been really wonderful as we've been doing Raspberry Pi is to see that very broad movement of coding clubs in schools of government interest all kind of coming together into this kind of storm of computer programming this year it's wonderful. Uh, carry on Catherine Uslin has got in touch on Twitter with a gauntlet to throw down to you and says you should try the coding club in French, which is what she said. She's in Seattle. She said, adventurous teachers try the hour of code in class. We did it in French class where students were in awe that I knew how to code. And she points out that she started with basic too. So maybe that's that's your next step. I think it's wonderful. Um, computing is a very creative thing that you can do and it's so cross-curricular. I mean, any primary school teachers who are listening who are nervous about the curriculum changes shouldn't be because um, it can actually help them teach lots of other different subjects like history or science or, you know, dance, if that's what they've got to do in the classroom. Computing can be applied to all of those things and it's wonderfully cross-curricular. So, Rob, you you actually teach computer science here at Cambridge. So what is actually the difference between computer science and the kind of random hacking which I do? (laughs) (laughs) I think think it's great that people pursue that kind of uh, self-directed learning and uh, hobbyist programming. And it's the kind of people we hope to see at interview, people who um, are able to demonstrate that passion for the subject by actually learning uh, about it in their own time. It's the, it's the sort of thing that uh, Raspberry Pi is fantastic um, to enable people to do. But um, I suppose the, the difference is that if you, if you want to answer the question, what's lacking is an understanding of the underlying science and the, the, you know, the formal computer science that underpins the subject. So uh, that's perhaps something that people need to get at university. And these things, I think they complement each other. You know, there's, a, there's real value to somebody arriving at Cambridge, say at the age of 18, having or, you know, to get that um, theoretical basis, having already in their back pocket some experience of the day-to-day business of hacking. And that's what we used to have, and I think that's what we're trying to get back towards. So is there a problem with recruitment at the moment? So historically, over the last 10 years, there has been. So we had high numbers of people applying around 2000, 2001, and I guess we had the dot-com boom, and that took some energy out of applications. And numbers dropped and continued to drop, I guess, because of um, what was happening in schools, to about 200 in 2008. So at that point, I got involved with the sort of Raspberry Pi initiative, and people in the, in the lab were getting involved with computing at school and, and really trying to understand what the problem was and what we could do about it. 
things have really turned around now. I think, as Open says, there's been lots of different groups and lots of different people have really got up behind this idea that computing is a really important, it's a really important skill that people should have to support the economy. It's something that uh, supports tens of billions of pounds of investment in the economy, and um, it's something that's that's really important. So we've seen numbers rise back up to more than 500 now. Uh, nationally, it's uh, I think it's growing faster than any other subject this year. What's the impression amongst parents of students, either at school, Karen, or, or, or at your level, Rob, about people wanting to do computer science? Because I've had it said to me that some people get put off by their parents because their parents think it's something that's a geeky hobby that's good for your bedroom at weekends and for having fun with your mates playing World of Warcraft, but is not going to lead you into a sort of gameful employment. I think there's a lot of... I mean, one of the things I've understood begin to understand over the, over the last few years trying to make a difference in this area is there's a lot of misconceptions about what computer science is uh, and lots of misconceptions about the sort of jobs that a comp- degree in computing can lead to. And I think it's often a, what people misunderstand is they think that a degree in computer science only leads to a job in coding or only something that you do if you, if you want to become a computer scientist. And the reality is computer science is used in just about all industries now. It's a passport to to take a fantastic job anywhere in the world. And I think that's beginning to come through now. And parents are are now understanding that it is a a useful degree. I think parents, from what I've seen, especially the last few days, um, talking to parents at the Cambridge Science Festival, they're really enthusiastic about it, really enthusiastic about the changes that are coming to the curriculum. And they're actually excited to use Raspberry Pi because they're hoping it will get their children away from closed systems like the iPad and, and the Xbox and so on. And rather than just consuming technology and playing computer games, you know, they're more excited about the students making the games, you know, their children actually writing the code that will make those computer games. So is the only win going to be people actually working in computer science or is it useful for just to have the general background knowledge of computing in society? We believe very strongly that the skills that you learn as a computer scientist, those skills, they're very, very broadly applicable. You know, we call this computational thinking sometimes. And we say, you know, computational thinking will make you a better doctor. It will make you a better lawyer. It'll make you a better manager. And so really, by giving people access to those things at a very, very early age, we're really keying them up to do this very broad range of things in later life. Evan Upton, Carrie-Ann Philbin and Rob Mullins, thank you all very much for coming in. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Dave Ansell. If you'd like to get in touch, it's chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or you can find us on our Facebook page. We're talking computing this week and how to get more kids coding. But of course, one thing that you do need to be able to do is to do big calculations in a very big way. We've talked about one of the smallest computers in the world, Raspberry Pi, but what about one of the most powerful? Well, about a month ago, I was in Chicago for the AAAS meeting, and I tripped along also to the Argonne National Laboratory, which is home to one of the world's biggest computers. They call their computer Mira, and its custodian is Pete Beckman. So right now we're in the building which houses our supercomputer, Mira, that's its nickname, and this data center here we refer to as the core. When we say supercomputer, what does that mean? Here at Argonne, we try and solve science problems that are so massive, so large, that there's no way you can fit this on a couple machines or laptops or even at Amazon Web Services. This is a machine which is purpose-built to run the absolute most massive computations you can imagine. So if I were to try and solve a problem on my laptop that might take a, a couple hours, 
I could do that in a split second on Mira. But the real question is, what about the opposite? If I spent a day of time on Mira, what kind of problem could I solve? And if that problem were even to fit in my laptop, it wouldn't fit. But if I just churned it out on my laptop, it would take more than 300 years to compute. So no scientist is going to wait around uh, for more than a couple days to get their answer, Not certainly not hundreds of years. What sorts of problems need that sort of power? So a good example is climate modeling. Another good example is understanding the nature of the universe. So one of the world's largest computations for the Big Bang and dark energy and dark matter. We can't wind the clock back and do an experiment in, in a lab to understand the Big Bang. So we do that experiment with a simulation inside our computer. There are also applications in designing jet engines and designing landing gear and uh, more commercial applications that companies use because, again, it's difficult to build a jet engine that you would like to design and then test it. It's much easier to build that in the computer. And what actually is the architecture of a supercomputer? How is it constructed? So supercomputers are different than regular machines in that they put a lot of emphasis on floating point operations and moving data very quickly. What's a floating point operation? Good question. So if you were to do a simple math problem, A times B plus C, that's called a flop. And a flop, F-L-O-P, is a floating point operation. And it's a one multiply and one add. So our machine is 10 petaflops. Does it consist of effectively one computer connected to another computer connected to another computer? So you've just got hundreds and hundreds of machines all working in parallel, or is it more complicated than that? Nowadays, we build supercomputers by making them parallel. It isn't the way supercomputers were always built. In the first supercomputers, it was a single computer that was just built to be very, very fast. So this is the model of the you know, Formula One racing car. But now, with the problem so big, there's no way you can make one car drive as fast as you want, so you have a fleet. And so what we have in this room is really a purpose-built fleet of CPUs and memory and connection. How do you set tasks for it to do? So we have a programming language. The language we use is C and C++ and Fortran. But then we have a series of mechanisms by which we push data and share data back and forth between all of these hundreds of thousands of processors. We literally have hundreds of thousands of CPUs in the machine. And that layer is called MPI for message passing interface. And that's what computer scientists learn. They learn how to design algorithms and break up a scientific problem into thousands of little pieces that can be solved independently. And if one of those hundreds of thousands of CPUs dies, do you know, and how does that affect the operation of the supercomputer? We hear the tree falling, yes, Uh, and scientists are not happy at all when that happens. Most applications are using a technique that we call checkpoint restart. So they periodically save their state. It's kind of like with your home computer, you hit save. The problem is that with so much data in our machine, even just saving that out takes 30 minutes to an hour. So you can't afford to hit control S and save every few minutes. It's something that happens every six hours or eight hours that you would save your checkpoint. Is this resource available to scientists at your institution and beyond and do they just book time on it if they want a problem to be solved? Actually, because this is considered a national resource, that means that if you have a good science problem, 
and you write a proposal and convince people that you can solve your science problem with our supercomputer, then you get time on it for free. And so we have people from all over the world who have applied to get time on our supercomputer. Can we go into the yeah, call? Yeah, let's go in. Now, it's a little bit noisy in there, so you might not be able to hear me so well, but we're going to open the door, head into the core, and take a look at Mira. You're right. It okay. is pretty noisy in <laughs> yes. there, please. Um, so I'm basically seeing rows and rows of massive black racks. Yes. So the reason it's so noisy is that a supercomputer runs on several megawatts of power, and you have to cool that. And so right now what you're hearing are all of the fans blowing air in order to provide cold air. Now, Mira is actually unique in this case, though, because part of Mira is water-cooled. So if we didn't have the other supercomputers in here, if we only had Mira, it would actually be pretty quiet. And if you were to leave this building and look outside, you'd see the chillers, which are providing the cold water. What is your electricity bill? So a megawatt of power is about a million dollars a year, and Mira needs about six megawatts. So that's about a $6 million a year uh, electric bill, which is a lot of money. Is that just the computers without the aircon taken into account, or does that include your aircon? That's, that's just the computer. And then, you know, the facility is a bit more. But this machine is actually extremely power efficient compared to other computers. So there's a computer in China and in Oak Ridge that take 20 megawatts to run and cool. They're much, much less efficient than our machine. So that is a $20 million electric bill, which uh, is, is kind of hard to fathom. And people here moan about their electricity bills. Thank you very much to Pete Beckman. He's from the Argonne National Laboratory in Chicago. I did actually ask them, Dave, if, uh, if it does Facebook, but they said it doesn't, said it wouldn't be very fast. Quite difficult get it to log on, not running the right software. So what kind of science do we need this new breed of supercomputers for? Well, this week, the UK's Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council are going to announce the launch in Edinburgh of a new £43 million supercomputer. It's called Archer. It's always important to get your acronym right, and this one stands for Academic Research Computing High-End Resource, and it's capable of, get this, more than 1 million billion calculations per second. We're joined by Jason Rees, the Regis Professor of Engineering from Edinburgh University, who uses supercomputers for his research. So, Jason, what do you use these supercomputers for? Hello, Dave. We use supercomputers for doing engineering simulations. There are three ways in which supercomputers are very good for doing these kind of simulations. First, with a supercomputer, you can divide a very big simulation into a number of smaller simulation packets and solve these simultaneously. Second, you can solve many individual problems at the same time. And third, many people can use a supercomputer at once um, and you can access it remotely. So if you want to be on the beach in the Caribbean and you've got an internet access or Wi-Fi access, you can access these computers. <laughs> Sounds uh, like a good life. So we use these supercomputers in each of those three ways. The work that we're doing at the moment is with um, Duncan Lockerbie in Warwick University and David Emerson in Daresbury Lab. And it's funded by the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council in the UK. And what we're using the supercomputers for is to design new types of filtration membranes to separate pure water from seawater. So this would be ways of getting fresh water if you're in the middle of a desert, but you've got the sea next door to you. Absolutely. It's a real challenge in engineering at the moment because drinking water is already scarce for more than a billion people around the world and is probably going to become worse through climate change. So how are you actually trying to do this? Our work exploits the fact that fluid dynamics, the way that fluids flow in and around systems, changes when you get to the nanoscale, so that's 10 to the minus 9 of a metre. 
If you make up filtration membranes of aligned nanotubes, and nanotubes, for example, carbon nanotubes, are rolled up sheets of graphene, but very small diameter, about one nanometer, in fact, in diameter. Water can travel along the nanotubes very quickly, but the sodium and the chloride ions can't travel into the nanotubes because they've got a hydration shell of uh, water molecules around them. So what this means is if you have a membrane and it's comprised of aligned nanotubes, it could be carbon nanotubes or boron nitride or silicon carbide nanotubes, the water will be able to pass through it, but the sodium and the chloride ions won't. I guess you didn't need a superconducer to work out this might work. Why aren't you just actually going out there and making stuff? Why are you putting it all on a big computer? Well, the great thing about supercomputers and computers in general is that you can run simulations for design. So one of the big questions is what kind of nanotubes? How would you align them in the membrane? How long should they be? What is the optimum diameter of the nanotubes? And also, before you go and build something, you often want to have a prediction as to uh, how effective it's going to be. In your computer, you've got some representation with little um, nanotubes. So are you modelling just how they behave with water or also how you actually make them? Because I imagine making a forest of these nanotubes isn't necessarily trivial. Making them is a, is a different question, that's right. If you make um, carbon nanotubes, you often make thicket of carbon nanotubes and they've all got sort of different diameters. And, and you, you probably want to separate out the ones that work well in filtration membranes from the ones that don't. The real challenge for the simulations and why you can't do this on your desktop machine is that water behaves as a molecular substance. If you're going to design a ship or if you're going to design an aeroplane or even just water flowing in a a water mains pipe, then you can use standard equations of fluid dynamics. But all of those you have to start questioning and in many cases throughout the window when you're talking about nanotubes and nanoscale flows because you have to model the individual molecules. So... The reason we use a supercomputer is because we're simulating hundreds of thousands or millions of molecules at a time. Each of them interact with each of the other molecules in the simulation, and we have to run the simulation for a reasonable amount of time so we can get the steady-state flow properties of these membranes. How much computer time are you actually using on this problem? Last year, we used 1 million CPU hours for these simulations. That works out at about 140 years of computer time. So what's the next step? This is exactly why we are doing the simulations. We've started identifying the best types of nanotubes, the best types of solid molecules for the membranes. Now we're working with our partners at Bath University, Davide Mattia at Bath University, to start testing these. There's been a lot of interest in fluid flows at the nanoscale recently because fluid behaves very differently to what it does around larger scale objects. So this is just one of the applications of nanoscale fluid dynamics that we're looking at at the moment. Thank you very much, Jason Rees from Edinburgh University. This is The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Dave Ansell. We're talking computing this week and how to get more kids coding. Our teaser question this week, who wrote the first official computer programme? You've got a few minutes left to have a guess and then we'll tell you. But before then, though, let's find out on the subject of hard-to-answer questions what Hannah Critchlow's been up to this week for our question of the week. This week, we jump up and down... Hi, my name is Pinesh and I live in Harlow. My question is, if the Earth is spinning, why do we need to travel in an aeroplane? Could we not arrive at our destination if we stay static in the sky and land when we spot our destination as the Earth spins by? So, using the Earth's natural spin to help long-distance travel across its surface. Engineer Professor Hugh Hunt from Cambridge University. The air around the Earth is moving at the same speed as the Earth. 
How fast is the Earth moving due to its rotation? Well, it's moving at about a thousand miles an hour, which means that if we did sort of hover at rest above the spinning Earth, the wind speed we'd feel would be a thousand miles an hour. And that would be impossible to deal with unless you had an aerodynamic object like an aircraft with engines to hold yourself against the wind. And that's exactly what an aircraft is. Concorde, for instance, could fly at the equator at about a thousand miles an hour and could stay still, essentially. It would hover above the Earth, the Earth would be spinning around underneath it, and it would then land somewhere else. If there were no atmosphere, it doesn't solve the problem, because we then don't have aerodynamic lift to hold the plane up. So we have to go into orbit. And going into orbit, well, the speeds there are even bigger, 20,000 miles an hour. And that requires a lot of fuel and a spacecraft. So you, the Earth and the atmosphere are constantly moving very fast as the Earth rotates. If you jump up and somehow manage to stop, you'd be faced with whopping 1,000 mile per hour winds. Get out of the wind and up into orbit and the fuel you'd have to consume to get there would far exceed the fuel used by a plane, which uses the wind currents to their advantage. Another point is that, as Newton worked out, objects keep moving at the same velocity unless a force is applied. So stopping from speed is just as tricky as starting to get to speed in the first place. So even on an airless world, elevator-style travel across the Earth using its spin would still use up energy and wouldn't be that different to other modes of transport. Thanks, Banesh, for the question and Hugh Hunt for the answer. We next get our heads spinning around this. Hello, Naked Scientists. I'm Stefan from Switzerland, and I was wondering about human microevolution. Birds and insects are changing their patterns to cope with climate change. But what about us? Did we develop thicker bones or tooth animal to cope with longevity? Will we develop stronger index fingers to use with touchscreens or computer mice? Thank you. Has human evolution halted? What do you think? And if you can help Hannah, then the email address to write to is chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thenakedscientist, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter. The answer to the quiz, we had lots and lots of you getting in touch to have a go. Many of you got this right, too many to read out. The first computer programme was composed by Ada Lovelace, who, surprisingly enough, was the daughter of the English poet Lord Byron. She was a talented mathematician and she was also a friend of Charles Babbage. And amongst some notes that she published is a programme for making Babbage's analytical engine. This is a design that hasn't actually been realised for a mechanical computer, and it was for making that computer calculate a mathematical sequence called the Bernoulli sequence. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you very much to our guests, Leslie Vossel, Clem Pryke, Mark Peplow, Eben Upton, carrie Ann Philbin, Rob Mullins and Jason Rees. Thank you to Dave Ansell for joining me and to Kate Lamble for production. Next time, we'll be trying to tell our left from our right, including looking at why 90% of us are right-handed. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and the STFC. My name is Chris Smith. This is RN. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.